Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton along with Jason Rodenbeck. In this episode, we discuss the problem with universalism. Please consider supporting our work by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash paulaxton. I'm afraid that in doing various forms of universalism, and I'm in no way accusing Hart of explicitly doing this, but what I'm suggesting is that implicitly what's taking place, you know, he resists in Doors of the Sea, uh, he resists the notion of a theodicy, all well and good, but then he suddenly interjects into the book the notion, yes, but the cross of Christ. He argues for divine apathia. And so he doesn't want a theodicy that explains evil for humans, but what he attempts to do, I'm afraid, in divine apathia, and even in his picture of the cross of Christ as establishing divine apathia for Christ himself, that he's giving us a rescue of God from the problem of evil, giving us a a form of theodicy in which God is untouched by evil. I think that's precisely what we do not have, and that universalism then can function in that way. In other words, it's Mm -hmm. saying that there is justice and there is an explanation And the justice and the explanation is to be found elsewhere again. I'm not claiming that I understand justice or how justice will be worked out, but I presume that the inauguration of justice and a real-world overcoming of evil is to be found not in God's removal of himself from the problem of evil, but in his direct participation in a world that would be overtaken with evil were it not for the cross of Christ. And in this, I'm not Hegelian, and I understand we, that we always go back to Moltmann, don't we? <laughs> and yet Moltmann's picture that God then in Christ is depicted as suffering. I think that in a classical you know, notion of divine apathia, and I'm not even denying the doctrine. Mm-hmm. In other words, that oh well, maybe some way, somewhere, somebody could work that out. But what I would say is, yeah, but nobody's done it yet. Mm. What we have is an incapacity, an apophatic understanding, and I'm afraid that what happens is that people begin to rely upon what they don't know, an apophaticism, an apathia, an inaccessibility of God that becomes primary over a Christocentrism. What we're given in a Christocentric understanding in God understood and revealed in Christ is something to which we have access, which we can at yeah. least impart. That's the point of incarnation. That's John 1. Yes. That's the entire point. Yes. The cross, you said a moment ago, we don't know how justice actually works out. I'm I'm with you. I don't know that I can look in every situation. Some of the things I've seen in work or uh, something I see in the neighborhood and and say, well, this is the absolute just thing. This is the godly thing that should happen. I feel like I can kind of say, you know, what I think 
would be more godly in some of these situations. Um, and then I don't always trust myself, <laughs> um, probably rightfully so. But what I do think we're supposed to take away from the Gospels is that the way justice works out is when we would die on a cross rather than put our enemy on a cross. And Jesus fulfills that on the cross, but he fulfills it in such a way as to say, this is what it's about. He fills that up, and this is what it's about. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the New Testament is a, a constant, the epistles are full of this, and Revelation is full of this, a constant call to say, now, this is how you live out that I'm, I'm really uh, influenced by Gorman on cruciformity. His term of cruciformity, that this is how that's lived out, that this is what that is. This is how God makes things right again by saying, I'm a God who would die at your hand rather than take out my punishment or a punishment on you. Be this. If you want to be my image again, this is how you do that. And to participate in his kingdom is to be that. Now, I wish I could say that I was a master at that. Uh, but I at least I think you have to, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to say, be willing to say that's what that's what we are supposed to be. I think that we've laid out, okay, as far as I can tell, we're in agreement. We see the same problems that we've got this basis to have a conversation. Okay. Now that we've done this, <laughs> let me go back to my original statement. I, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied and now. I got everything don't, out. Don't get nervous. So I'm not going to yeah. take away my hand when I gave you with the right. <laughs> that in a reading, in other words, a reading that I've come to, and it in no way contravenes what we've just said. Sure. That in Romans, I'm convinced that what Paul is describing is cosmic universal salvation. And that's that just makes sense of that book. I'm not saying that Paul is saying everything there or that that, that might not be qualified elsewhere, but it's not qualified in that book. Okay, yeah, I got no problem with that. Based on what I feel like I think universalism is, God's desire to restore his created his creation. This is kind of where I'm at. In other words, we can still talk about universality, universal salvation. Oh, yeah. That that's what is happening in the New Testament. But it seems that salvation is cosmic, it's for everyone, but there is a working out of a real-world practical salvation, a Christocentric understanding. There are these categories that I do not comprehend. And I'm just willing to say that I'm going to kind of leave it in an agnostic place. I trust that God's justice is going to be worked out. Whatever I believe about my understanding of salvation, practical as it is, Christocentric as it is, embodied as it is, I still don't have comprehension in an absolute sense. I can only tell you that I know what I imagine. Because I've, I fell into thinking some years ago that, and I, I don't remember where I heard it or who said it, 
that it is our hope in the resurrection that enables us. Uh, and I think it pull, it's right out of Hebrews 12. Um, he bore it across, but rejected its shame because he was looking forward to being raised. That was how he could do the cross, that there was a victory over that. To me, so much of the way I've been able to coexist with this idea of what it means to be a Christian, it requires a cross, is I look forward to a day and try to, and I've imagined, I've tried to write about imagining what kind of world that is, that it's a better world, that it's a world that works right. I can't speak with any kind of certainty or authority on it. Absolutely not. But yet the hope that there is a final form of, of creation that is what God intended and that we experience that is what helps you get through the cross now so that it isn't meaningless. And that, to me, that, that was one of the problems is, does our cross-bearing then become meaningless? Well, it's meaningful in that there is a hope in that cross-bearing. We look forward to something that Jesus has given. He gives our death meaning by defeating death. It's not meaningless. We're not, you know, we don't just live and then die and that there's meaning to it. It's a meaning that makes the suffering bearable, the suffering of the cross bearable. That took us in a different direction than where you were going I don't think so. I think that, in other words, that's still what's at stake, and I'm still wanting to put the emphasis there, and that's where we want to dwell. And so, in a sense, I don't want to pass from that. That's just the the place. But I think what uh, a Balthazar and others, or or at least you know, when people talk about a kind of doubtful but hopeful universalism, it is not a presumption to pass from that understanding, but to say. I believe God is going to restore justice and whatever that is, and maybe I cannot comprehend it. I'm going to leave that to God. I can imagine degrees of what I would like to happen or how I picture that, but what, whatever I do, however I picture it, it in some way falls short. Oh, yeah, certainly. Certainly. Yeah, it, it, of course it falls short. And maybe I'm copping out here. I'm I'm saying everything you said, and now I'm saying more. Or you're taking you're taking it back. <laughs> <laughs> you're taking it all back. So uh, you, you you just didn't you maybe, couldn't come this far. And, and, and actually, no, maybe just, I am. Maybe joking, that's my obviously. problem here. I'm being tossed about like a wave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're a reed in the wind, John. Um, you <laughs> need to. Uh, no, so there's a there's a passage. I wrote a piece that it was in uh, I think Christian Standard a long time ago or one of those magazines, and I had always taken it. And the passage has just left me where uh, I think it's Paul who talks about the powers of this world already being defeated. Christ has defeated. I think it's in Ephesians. He has defeated the principalities and the powers. Mm-hmm. Um. And, and which is a shocking statement when when you realize just how much it doesn't look like that, like they've been defeated. But I think that what Paul is getting at in saying such thing is that we live a life here now that is willing to bear a cross because we believe that the powers have already been defeated. And the reason I bring up the article is I um, did a twist on that, and I was writing, I wrote something about poverty. 
And I said, we don't feed the hungry because we think we can defeat poverty. We feed the hungry because we believe that poverty has already been defeated. And it was so foreign for the editor that when they actually printed the magazine, they changed it to our spiritual poverty as opposed to actual poverty. And I got so mad, I, was, I, I wrote and said, no, I meant poverty. You can't just change. And I didn't. I never wrote anything else for him again. And they went out of business. Yeah. <laughs> well, so there. Uh, they weren't. Uh, they weren't exactly beating down the door for articles from me, and and only six people read it anyway. But <laughs> when we talk about eschatology, the eschatology always has a bearing on the now. That we do. We do the now. Looking forward to the not yet. The not yet is what is what the now is all about. It we live as a witness to what we believe. You know, we are, in Ephesians. We are already seated with Him in the heavenly realms. We we're not physically up there. We are seated with Him. That's not a future thing. That is that is a now thing. Whatever that hope is, that is a hope that we have in order to live out in this in this now on this earth. I don't think there's any way around getting to the end of the conversation and going, but I don't know. When I say universalism, that's my I don't know. Yeah. It's a doubtful universalism. It's a hopeful universalism. It's a universalism that I don't quite know what I'm saying. It's a universalism that admits there is this tension. It's a universalism that says that God's justice is being worked out in present tense, this world categories. But nonetheless, there is this cosmic, all-inclusive picture in the New Testament. As I'm describing all this, part of the struggle that I'm having, and it is a struggle, as you can tell, Mm -hmm. but maybe it's a struggle we should all have, and that is that there is a fine balance between copying out, opting out, putting the weight elsewhere, and putting the focus in a very much a Christocentric understanding. In other words, I'm afraid that part of the discussion is that we would want to escape from our finitude, our humanity, and to take God's eye point of view. Right, right. I'm afraid that's what Hart has done. I'm afraid that's what many infernalists, universalists, scholastics, philosophers, I'm afraid that's always the temptation, is to imagine that on the basis of sound argumentation, given certain premises, we can come to absolute conclusions and certainty. Right. What I'm arguing for is actually a degree of muddled thinking. I think there's another another term we can use for it that is a lot better and it's just humility. Oh. That good. I like that. You know. Yes. So it's it's humility. But as you were talking about hopeful universalism, I've I was thinking because of my understanding of people and bodies and soul and all that stuff, I've I've just always sort of assumed in these recent decade or so that there are folks that are going to be raised from the dead and there are folks that aren't. The term for that is annihilation. I don't technically like that. I don't like because I think it's it seems like such an active thing. You know, God's going to completely destroy you or whatever. But it's it's a in my mind, it's always kind of been a hopeful one. I don't know who that entails. I don't know 
who's in and who's out. I don't want to know. I don't want to be the person that, because I, I can tell you, if it's me, it's going to be a very small number that are raised because I can be pretty awful. I don't know what any of that looks like. And I've always kind of assumed that it's probably a lot more than I would have thought. What I feel like I want to rest on is there's something on the other side of this that makes the cross bearable and makes sense. Because my whole life is predicated on this idea now that I'm supposed to I'm supposed to be on it. That's what a disciple of Jesus does. He follows or she follows Jesus to that cross. Uh, pick up your cross and follow. So if there's something to make sense of, the, the only thing I can make sense of that with is that there's something on the other side. I don't suppose it makes sense to talk about being a hopeful annihilationist. That isn't something that, that sounds quite as nice as hopeful universalist. I'm okay with universalism in that we define what we <laughs> what we mean, but there I am trying to get certainty. Again. And as you're saying this, I'm thinking, okay, let's uh, let's save Hitler. Um, yeah, Hitler would be easier for me than the, some some folks I've known personally, to be honest with you. And, uh, and we we shouldn't name names in a recording. Oh, go ahead, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. That what would it amount to? I mean, that here is this person who, uh, or some person that has so skewed and twisted the humanity that has completely leaked out of them, that if there is a salvation for such an individual, is it Hitler that got saved? Or is it? In other words, what is it? Yeah. You know, what has to happen for the cross to suddenly make sense to Hitler. Because to me, that's that's how that resurrection will work out, is it's a people that recognize that Jesus' way of living is, is the right way. It's the way that works. What do people say when you say, well, I think we're not supposed to kill each other? When they say, well, that doesn't work. we got to kill each other. Well, it's the people that I think make sense out of a resurrection are a people that are willing to say, no, we don't kill each other. That is what works. Yeah. Yeah, it is the violence. I think that's what it comes down to in a sense. I don't think you, most of these guys that are universalists are pastors. And that's an interesting correlate, I think. Uh, that I may be wrong in some instances, um, but I, I think in many instances I'm not. Mm-hmm. What we are describing in a peaceable kingdom in nonviolence is an understanding of Christianity whose character is primarily geared to saving us from a real-world violence and evil that is nameable and that we can see and and comprehend and that we're delivered from in Christ. And I'm afraid that the violence, that obviously with penal substitution, the real violence is God's violence, and violence is not really the problem. But also, I think, in varying degrees, that a Christianity that allows for... That does not equate violence with evil is going to be okay then with saying, yeah, there was there was this thing that happened, the violence and death, sound and fury, but it really all amounted to nothing. I think that's over and against the New Testament. Yeah, I feel like the big swing we're seeing about universalism, um, and it's it's been going on for a while. I think it started on a more popular level 
with uh, Rob Bell's book, I don't want to say started. I think it, there was a, a revitalization of the interest in it several years ago, and, and a lot of folks have responded. But I, I think it has a lot to do with folks who genuinely do believe in nonviolence and are interested in that and want to make sense of that, but then struggle with eternal hell, which I think is the right struggle. I do think that that, that is a problem, but then don't realize that they're relying on some similar categories to end up there. What I keep hearing is, well, it's, the gospel's not about who we should exclude. So there's this very, I think, noble and honorable uh, desire to be inclusive. As somebody who is personally touched by disability in our family, the language of inclusivity is very important to us. That's a that's a huge part of our family life and our and our and it's a passion of ours. But that term inclusive, I fear, gets a little co-opted because I think that the inclusivity of the gospel is intended to say marginalized people are included: the lepers, the sinners, the tax collectors the lame, the blind, the poor, the children, the old, or the Samaritan, the Gentile, the Jew. Our inclusivity is about not forgetting the marginalized. And so that that term, I think, gets a little bit co-opted in the conversation. Anytime we think that there are some people who aren't saved in the going to heaven club, then we're being exclusive. And we want to shun exclusivism altogether. And yet I can't help but feel like you spend much time in the Gospels and you'll see Jesus sort of allowing people to exclude themselves. And it was Stan McCreary said to me one time when I was frustrated with trying to get somebody, I, I've always been one that I feel like if I can just get you to listen long enough, you'll figure out what that I'm right. He said to me, you know, so let's say you're right all the time. And this is very, this is Stan and his wisdom. He said to me, you know, when Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler, a rich young man, and um, he said, what happened when, when Jesus told him what to do? I said, well, he turned around and walked away. And he said, did Jesus chase him down and say, no, no, look, just if you get it, look, I, I, l- let me let me explain it to you again. He said, no, it's, it's not for everyone. That's what, That was Stan's words. And I remember thinking, well, well heck, uh-huh. he let people go their own way. We go back to this idea that dignity that God has given godlike people to decide whether or not they'll do what he doesn't try to chase them down and force him. He doesn't turn and say, well, we'll get that worked out in the afterlife. No. It, and he says there is an exclusivity to the gospel. And then he says, look, there's a wide gate and a broad path that leads to destruction. Lots of folks go that way. But over here is this narrow gate, and not many people find this, but this is the way to life. My mind just has trouble escaping that. I'm with you. I'm with you. I think that's a good place to end. Yeah, I hope so, because we've been, we've been at it for an hour and a half, minus the, the part where the dog started barking. <laughs> I actually thought I had made you so angry. With that. That- uh, not on your birthday. I'll, I'll take it easier on your birthday. <laughs> oh, good. Jason, it's been wonderful. Yeah, I've, I, I, I wish, um, I wish we were closer. And we could spend more time. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares would like to contact us with questions 
want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.